Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I was on tour um, doing a stand-up comedy show all over uh, Great Britain, Ireland, whatever, and I stopped at a a university bookshop just randomly. Uh, University bookshops, I don't know if you're aware of this, they they have some great stationery bargains. So I I went in there looking for, you know, notepads and um, yellow stickies, and I saw a big, fat poetry book called The Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. And it was, um, it was. Exp- I was put off. It was, it was, it was twenty nine quid. This book, but nine hundred eighty two pages. So there was a lot of it. I mean, listen, listen to this for a poetry book. That's me hitting it. It's a big brick of a book, and I picked it up about seven times. And I'm thinking, I can't pay twenty nine quid for a poetry book. I've got lots of poetry books, but I couldn't. I put it down and picked it up, and in the end, I took it away, and I carried it for the whole tour, heavy as it as it was. Uh, there was a time on tour when I used to rush after shows to my hotel rooms with beautiful strangers, but now I prefer uh, fat books of of poetry. So. I, I got this book and I did, as I always do with it, with an anthology. I, I don't start from the beginning. I sort of flick through and, and this is, I know, slightly um, shallow of me, but I look for a, a title that, that grabs me. And the, the title that I saw was, was a poem, a poem from 1994 by Caroline Knox. And what a title. This poem is called Famous Big Shots. I mean, Famous Big Shots. I, it absolutely dragged me. If, if ever there was a, a, a Panini sticker collection called Famous Big Shots, I would be in there. And it, it was weird because Big Shots, you think of it, like, you know, it, it sounds, the whole poem, the idea of Famous Big Shots sounds like a sort of crass brutish celebration of success and I wanted to see how that manifested itself I knew nothing of Caroline Knox still don't really other than she wrote a poem that I love a lot and that is um, that is this poem I'll just read the first chunk of it to you I'm not going to stop on the way because it's a poem I don't like to, um, I like to read it out loud. It, it feels, uh, one of the, the, the poems that um, feels good on the lips. I'm just going to give you a blast of the first, I don't know, eight lines or so. Famous big shots of the world unite in black tie and nutria storm coats, omni-competent handsome dream boats, totally snazzy and slightly snobby, exclusive hot shots with prodigious bankrolls for clandestine bombshells, gaslight escorts, splendidly outfitted armfuls of cashmere, a judge diaphanous. Oh, it's, um, oh, I just think it's, it's a thing of, of beauty. What does it mean? Um, do I know what it means? I think one of the things about this poem is I don't actually know why I love it. 
completely, and I don't completely know what it means, the poem. But sometimes love is blind, and you keep going forward in a relationship, and you d- you don't need the facts, and and you don't need to know everything about that, the the object of your love. Anyway, I'm I'm gonna um I'm gonna go through it as best I can and give you some sense of its um of its glory. And the first line, famous big shots of the world unite. Um, (laughs) Oh, do I have to? Do I have to sell this line to you? It's so good. Famous big shots, first of all, as I've already said, is such a great phrase. But to use it here in a... um, in a parody of the Communist Manifesto, of course, which I would... One thing about the Communist Manifesto, I haven't read it. I'm not going to pretend I've read it. But one thing I feel confident of is it it is generally anti-big shot in its tone. Famous big shots of the world, you know, is clearly a, uh, a reference to the communist slogan, workers of the world unite. Probably the antithesis of the, uh, the big shot manifesto but the poem dares to juxtapose them and then it goes on to, to talk about these um i'm gonna say guys because i'm I, I never heard a woman called a big shot it may you know i may be um a little behind the curve in that but um they sound quite alluring i think the speaker's attitude here at this stage is quite is quite difficult because even the word big shot, although it seems to suggest that someone is successful and doing well, that there is a, there's, it has a sprinkling of derision in it. I think it's quite hard to call someone a big shot with complete unironic praise. Um, I don't think that works. But early on in the poem, at least, the speaker seems to um, be... Um, be impressed. I mean that they are described as omnicompetent, handsome dreamboats, totally snazzy and slightly snobby. And um, I mean again, totally snazzy and slightly snobby. So good to say, omnicompetent as well. They these guys, they are they have got life sorted, and um, they they are handsome and successful. And snazzy, and um, and also their their sex life sounds um, sounds great, because um, I think w- w- what we go on to here is is um, descriptions of their fabulous female associates, and and they are um, they are clandestine bombshells and gaslight escorts. Bombs, you know the old blonde bombshell thing, Jean Harlow, and over here in the UK it was um, Diana Dawes. And just the idea of a woman who walks into a room and you know the girl can't help it. Um, she, uh, just she, um, she's an event. It's a woman who's an event, basically. I'm trying to keep this at this stage. It sounds like it's going to be. Hold on, uh, Frank. This isn't the seventies. Uh, trust me, it, it'll be okay. One of the descriptions of these uh, fabulous female associates is, uh, as far as I can tell from my um, understanding of the poem, splendidly outfitted armfuls of cashmere. Now, can you imagine going to a party 
and and introducing your girlfriend as a sort of uh, oh this is uh, this is Susan or oh as I like to call her my splendidly outfitted armful of cashmere and I think it 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 it, it buys into that thing of the of arm candy you know the idea of the guy the big rich big shot guy who likes an incredible um incredibly not just beautiful but a woman who has a mystery and an air and a sort of exciting energy about her and um the the last line that i read you there um after the uh, splendidly outfitted armfuls of cashmere a judged diaphanous and that for me is the first sign that um we're going to go a bit deeper with this. I is is it the cashmere that's a judge diaphanous? Diaphanous, by the way, means uh, see through. There's lots of words to look up in this um, in this poem, which I'm I'm fine with. I think a poem should be a bit like a an advent calendar. You know, you should have to open some windows that that take you to a a slightly different uh, place. And I found myself going away and looking up several words in here, some which I should know and some which I, I don't think I should. Anyway, is, is, it, is it the cashmere that's judged, uh, a judged diaphanous, or is it the women themselves? Are these women, in the company they keep, are they, despite their glamour, sort of invisible plus ones? Are they dismissed as empty and without substance by the sort of salon that uh, that hovers around the uh, the famous big shot i i don't know i think it must be i mean i, I mean it is true that cashmere is diaphanous you can't get you know, those see-through um sheer uh, uh cashmere sweaters but whether they're a judged diaphanous i, I have one rarely hears of cashmere being a judged certainly not by me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go on. Um, we we get a bit more about the world that these um, famous big shots operate in. You can. Uh, I, I'm always going on about the way you can hear the the books and stuff in this uh, on this podcast. But this is a big. But this is a reading from this book is is an upper body workout in itself. Okay. Next bit. This is this. I think is the world now, the slightly wider world of the uh, of the famous big shot. Old blister, old beano, auspicious dearies and snooded consorts, fiscal eggheads and erstwhile tightwads, a lemacinery to the scrumptious amanuensis. <laughs> a lemacinery to the scrumptious amanuensis. It's it sounds like I'm playing an instrument. Um, that I think the words almost. They become music. So here, old blister, old beano, auspicious dearies. It sounds to me like that sort of the. I mean, having read that out, does it matter what it means? It's 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 like showering in a big, warm water full of words. But it does it does matter. Of, of course, it matters um, to some uh, extent, and. I'll, I'll be honest with you, as far as the words are concerned, I wasn't completely sure about um, auspicious and erstwhile. I know I should know them, but I had to look them up. Um, a lemacinery, that floored me. 
But I think a lot of poets feel an obligation to, to bring new words to the table when they when they write poetry. You know, they don't want words in their wardrobe that never get worn. And, and uh, you know, I love them. I love them for that. So those terms of endearment at the beginning, old blister, old beano and deary, suggests an, an in-crowd, I think. But, but the, the power structure now is getting more confused. You kind of feel that the famous big shots, um, the, uh, who I assume are also the fiscal eggheads, you know, the people who know about money, and erstwhile tightwads, so sort of um, former, former tightwads. So it sounds like the amazing um, women, the snooded consorts, are, are getting some of the money here. And, um, and then you get a, a sense of the power structure not being quite what you might think. Who's in charge here? The, um, the big shots or the uh, incredible um, females? That thing about erstwhile tightwad fiscal eggheads and erstwhile tightwads people who used to be very very careful with their money um a lima scenery to the scrumptious amanuensis now a lima scenery i had to look up it's a beauty isn't it it can mean two things it can be a beggar it can be a, a noun a beggar or it can be um the act of benevolence of, of giving of kindness both of which I think work here. So this 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 guy, this rich, big, powerful guy, is both a beggar to these women. He needs these women, and also he's showering cash. He's benevolent to them. That is what I think. Um, that's what I think it means. Uh, the scrumptious amanuensis. Amanuensis is a word I did know because I once went to a cricket match while drunk. And I leaned on the same arm for about five hours and couldn't use it for um, for days, weeks. And I had to, um, well, they thought I would have to do part of my final exams in the, in the degree I was doing. They thought I'd have to use an amanuensis. And a person, an amanuensis is a person who writes down what you, what you say. And I think the scrumptious amanuensis is some sort of glamorous PA figure so I think I think that this section is looking at these guys that the, the fiscal eggheads that the, 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 the erstwhile tightwads and their dependence on these women in all sorts of ways not not just sexually but also to sort of run their lives for them so it's the first the first hint I think of um, of weakness that's what I think is going on in that section. Um, I mean, I'm not really here as a translator uh, uh, for this poem. I'd say I'm here more as an evangelist for this um, for this poem. So um, they began, they began omnicompetent, these famous big heads. But the poet is tightening the focus and, and we're seeing the flaws now that they are in the next bit I'm going to read, they are sort of reduced now to their pathetically showy possessions. Um, get a load of this. With brass potter, vermeil niblick, bronze mashie and deco ronson, footed salver with deckled message, hammered flask and acajou stick, with great hat, grand leghorn, 
These foxy moderns, crafty sophisticates, putative expatriates. So their possessions, even their golf clubs, don't sound like they've bought them to play golf with. A Niblick, a Mashi and, 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 and a Potter are all um, golf clubs. But they're brass and vermeil or, or bronze. So it, it really, starting now to show the superficiality, the Deco Ronson, which is like, you know, so it's an Art Deco cigarette lighter, the footed solver, I don't want to go through all piece by piece, but that's like, you know, a, a tray on a stand with a Deco message, uh, some sort of calling card or whatever on handmade paper, etc., etc. But I love it in the midst of all that fancy and so like complicated, you know, the the the, the handmade um, flask, um, it's hammered flask that suggests sort of handcrafted the akaju stick, but then suddenly with great hat, um, I love that with great hat, still enjoying the famous big shots, the the the, the poet, um, with great hat, and then it's got an exclamation mark there, and oh man, it's we can have all the fancy stuff and go into detail, but let's still stop and celebrate the great hat. And I'm thinking, not great as in really good, but just big. They're wearing a big hat. Um, what the, it goes on there to say, um, grand leghorn, which is a sort of straw hat. I know it's um, it's a lot of uh, new stuff, but it, then you start to think, well, hold on, are they are they as amazing as 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 they as they say the great big shots as, as they seem to be? Um, that they rely on all this, um, then on all this uh, trivia, this these, these possessions, and um, and also that they are they are not really moderns. It seems not really sophisticates. They are described as foxy moderns or crafty sophisticates. Doesn't sound authentic. It's like they're deceiving us into believing that they are modern and sophisticated, and also. Excitingly, excitingly foreign. They are um, putative expatriates. So uh, putative meaning sort of believed but not proven. And, you know, people always, they enjoy the air of mystery that you get from a sort of an assumed foreignness. foreignness. It's, 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 it's a, a technique of the phony sophisticate, I think. Some sort of, you know, European mystique that you want to, you want to get across and you can get it in their reading matter because the, the poet's final sort of probing examination of these guys does um, describe their reading matter and how it's treated. And I think a poet or, or indeed a, a, a reader or a lover of poetry might forgive the famous big shots. Anything might forgive them the... Um, the uh, the cashmere arm for might might forgive them the slightly showy slightly um, pathetic uh, nature of their materialism, but um, they won't forgive them a pretended love of literature, which which seems to be the next section because it says they leave their unread half calf first edition of Trilby by Georges de Maurier on the faux malachite plinth, and they scarper. And um, 
It's on red, this book. It's, it's a half calf is, is, is a form of very beautiful binding. So the appearance of the book seems more important to the content in that it's on red. Um, it's a first edition. Again, that is much more about status than any, um, any love of literature. And it's, it's also Trilby by Georges de Maurier, which I haven't read. I've seen uh, the movie. It's it's about sort of bohemians in Paris. So it's the sort of book that you might want to carry in order to look like the sort of person who reads that sort of book rather than be the sort of person who reads that book. And they they leave it on a faux malachite plinth. So it's on a plinth in that they have sort of, if you like, put art, put literature on a pedestal but it's faux malachite, so even that is not real. It's it's part of their phoniness that has been sort of slowly unravelled by this by this poem, and uh, so they put leave the the, the half red um, the unread um, half calf first edition on the faux malachite plinth, and they scarper. So obviously, scarper means to go so that they clear off. But Scarpa is also, as I understand it anyway, it's Italian for shoe. So even their exit suggests Italian shoes. One last flash of faux sophistication before they, before they disappear. So we've really seen the sort of... We've we've gone from um, the omnicompetent to the superficial here, and I feel we, the, you know, the the poet has undermined the famous big shot and um, all that that they stand for, very subtly. I think anyway that Caroline Knox has done that. Like I say, I'm not going to stand here and say this is definitely what this poem means. I, every poem I talk about. It's my interpretation and um, what it does to my head and to my heart. This is what I think it means. The last two lines of the poem are um, such a joy to me because this poem has been, as as I say, it's been a waterfall of of words. It's been um, so baroque, this poem, so ornate so rich, uh, such a joy to read out loud. And you think, wow, you know, how do we, how do we follow the, the clandestine bombshells and the uh, armfuls of cashmere, a judge diaphanous, a lemacinery and the vermeil niblick. And how do we follow all that? How do you close anything that's so, so, so dripping with, interesting and exciting images and this is how it ends out of the blue it ends like this this is a true account of famous big shots not one word has been distorted or omitted i didn't see that coming up it, it it's like a sort of an american cop show ending all the verbal fireworks all the ambiguities of um seem to have gone i i find it um a delight because it it's so 
it comes out of nowhere. It's suggesting when it says this is a true account of famous big shots, not one word has been distorted or omitted, as if this poem is a piece of journalism, which it most definitely, um, although it may tell us the truth, I'm not saying it doesn't tell us the truth, it is It is certainly, um, I don't think it would be true to say that not one word has been distorted or um, maybe omitted, maybe not one word has been omitted, but it suggests a plainness and uh, a straightforward nature to the poem, which I don't think is quite accurate. So, okay, so so we've looked at the famous big shots and they are impressive at first. And I think this is how it works with um, with famous big shots. They look impressive and the closer you get, the more you find out about them. And by the end, they seem slightly tragic. So omnicompetent uh, by the end is sort of a, that now really is a mere dot in the rear in the uh, the rear view mirror of the reader. It's um, it seems a long time since we were able to accept their omnicompetence. So, yeah, I love it, and I don't think anything about this poem is straightforward. Even the title is um, loaded, and most of the action I think seems to be going on between the lines, but. Uh, it's brilliant. In the book, in the big fat Norton anthology of postmodern American poetry, I'm going to slap it again. That baby. There is a tiny bit about Caroline Knox. Um, I'm not a big fan of um, going deep into the biography of, of poets, but um, there's a little bit. And there's a, uh, a quote from a, a woman called Sarah Eggers, which I do like. And Sarah Eggers says of um, Caroline Knox's poetry, the unnerving quality of this work results from subtly rendering English as if it has been translated from English. And that, I think, is is, is a brilliant insight. It's, yeah, it's, it's English, we get it, but it just, there's something a bit unsettling about it. And and something where you feel I'm reading it over here and it's sort of happening over there. Um, so do I understand famous big shots? Well, I love famous big shots and I love my what I would call my ongoing experience of it. I, it's, I'm sort of like a dog with a bone with a poem like this. I, I love the chewing of it. I love the chewing and the marrow I know might be always out of reach but the chewing is is um is joyous and this is a i'd like to leave you with this this is an odd thing which about me which i don't um completely understand is that i um i read a lot of very difficult poetry poetry that i find difficult often a lot more difficult than this I'm, I'm trying to think of some examples. J.H. Prynne, Charles Olson, John Ashbery. I, I'm I'm not sure why I like it, um, that kind of poetry. I'm not claiming for one second that I it makes me brighter or cleverer to like it because I don't understand it. That's not what I'm getting out of it. But I, I love that feeling of something big going on to the point where I don't really need to know what it is. I just like to be in its in its presence. 
And obviously there are people that it wouldn't seem uh, that difficult to, people who know more and understand poetry more than I do, but I don't envy them. They don't know what they're missing. I think the the joy of the unfathomed is what I'm talking about. So this particular episode is partly about the joy of not really understanding a poem. But I thought I would not say that right right at the beginning of the uh, of the podcast I because it might put you off a bit so I thought I'd uh, I'd save it to the end I'm I'm not suggesting that you go out and spend 29 quid on the Norton anthology of uh, postmodern American poetry what I am suggesting is that a poem doesn't need to happen for you straight away And the thing that attracts you to a poem and the thing that you like about a poem need not be understanding it. Just like a person, there are other things that going on, sounds, some sense of allure, some sense of wanting to get closer to that poem is all you need. I think understanding is overrated in lots of... um, in lots of aspects. So go and, you know, read read poetry, and if you don't get it first time, that's good. It's like those albums. You know, you buy an album, you love it when you first hear it. If you like it straight away, you'll almost get, always get bored of it after about 10, 12, 20 plays. But those albums, when you buy and you think, I'm saying buy, download, whatever... You think, oh, I'm not sure about this, and you give it another go, you persevere a bit, then you give up, and then some of the echoes of it come back to you when you're sitting having your meal and stuff, and you think, I'm going to go and listen to it, and in the end, that is the poem, that that is the album that stays with you for the rest of your life. So, yes, um, don't give up um, early on any poem if you have any kind of a sense that there is worth and um, genuine merit in there, somewhere, as I think Gerard Manley Hopkins said of Algernon Swinburne's poetry, um, he spoke of diamonds set in impenetrable quartz. And I think sometimes it's, it's worth continuing to chip away. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. See you next week. Oh, and uh, P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs.